Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're continuing on in our series through the Gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 23. And while you're turning there, uh, I guess you were saddened like I was to hear of the death of Alex Trebek this past week, the host of Jeopardy since 1984. Boy, that's a long time ago. And uh, actually, that was the year I became a Christian too. So I uh, have been a Christian as long as there's Jeopardy. Um, I heard the news last Sunday afternoon from our daughter Hope, who loves Jeopardy, as do many students and college students age people. And you probably know that in Jeopardy, they give you the answer and you have to give them what? The question, right? And I couldn't help but uh, myself, but I texted Hope and I said, now Alex knows the answer to the greatest question. How does a person get to heaven? And on Jeopardy, they would always have the final Jeopardy question, right? And the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. There will be a final Jeopardy, and you better have the answer and the question right, uh, correct then. Alex, the final Jeopardy answer is through faith in Jesus. The question is, how does a person receive eternal life? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father in heaven but by me. Hopefully Alex knew the right answer and is uh, with the Lord now because for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And getting that question and answer right will be all that matters uh, after this life is over. Remember in the 1970s, there was a popular statement, a slogan that was on some bumper stickers. What did it say? Jesus is the answer, right? Well, folks, Jesus is also the question, the unavoidable question, and leads to an unavoidable decision. In today's passage, we're going to see the tragic story of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor uh, who knew Jesus was innocent, pronounced him innocent, and yet sent him forward to be crucified. And I think about what we're going to read and see. Pilate did everything he could to avoid his Jesus dilemma. But deciding what to do with Jesus is life's unavoidable decision. Luke chapter 23. It says, then the whole multitude of them, that be the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, arose and led Jesus to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked Jesus, saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered and said, you said it. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Verse 6, When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. 
Then he questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused Jesus. Then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been in enmity with each other. Verse 13, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. He'll scourge him, that very painful near-death experience of scourging that the Romans did, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder." Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. The unavoidable decision. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for how beautifully, Holy Spirit, you worked through Luke, the human author, to give us the gospel of Luke and the amazing record that's here. And we have been convinced in reading these verses that Jesus is indeed who the prophet said he would be. He's the Messiah. He's the one that fulfills the prophecies and he works the miracles that prove that he was the son of God, that he was God the son. I thank you, Jesus, for not only your willingness to deal with our sin problem, but the love that made you go to that cross for us, God. At any time, you could have stopped these sham proceedings, whether it was before the Jewish trials or the Roman trials, and you let it unfold just as the prophets had spoke because if it had not, then we would still be in our sin. We'd still be bound for hell. But thank you, Jesus, that you took the penalty, the guilt, the shame due our sin upon yourself there at the cross. And as we read about the buildup to that, God, we are so grateful. And now our thoughts turn to Pilate and how Pilate in a very real way uh, exemplifies all of us trying to avoid the Jesus dilemma, the Jesus question, the Jesus answer. And yet you have made it so that people need Christ or they'll go to hell. And so if we would be forgiven, if we would have a place in heaven instead of hell, we need to go through Jesus. And we can't wash our hands of that. We need to either bow and receive you as Savior and Lord or reject you and continue on the pathway to hell. Thank you that you did everything necessary for us to go to heaven instead of hell and to have eternal relationship with you, the living God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, folks, last time we did, in the last passage, we looked at those three Jewish trials that Jesus had before the religious leaders, and this time we see the three Roman trials where first you get Jesus before Pilate, then he sends to Herod, and then back to uh, Pilate uh, for the third time. Uh, Luke actually has the most balanced presentation in all of the Gospels. Uh, all four Gospels talk about this time before the Roman trials. 
for Matthew, two-thirds of the time was on the Jewish trials, 38 of 59 verses, and that makes sense because Matthew's gospel starts by trying to convince his Jewish audience that Jesus was the proper Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark is also 62% on the Jewish trials, 31 of 50 verses. John tilts things toward the Roman trials, 29 of his 54 verses, or 54%, are toward the Roman trials in keeping with John's purpose for everybody in the world to know Jesus. And Luke... The Gentile historian actually goes right down the middle, 50% on the Jewish, 50% on the Roman, 26 of 51 verses on the Roman trials, but that's exactly just a little bit over half. So in these three Roman trials of Jesus, we see him twice before Pilate and once before Herod. Let's start by looking at verses one through four, the first Roman trial of Jesus before Pilate. Look again at verse one there. It says that the Sanhedrin, the leaders, brought Jesus to appear before Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea between A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. The Jews hated him. He was not their friend. They seriously disliked him. Some of the reasons are actually in Luke chapter 13, 1 through 3. You can look at that later if you like. But in that passage, it tells us that Jesus' disciples asked him about something Pilate had done. Pilate had set up Roman god banners in the Jewish temple complex And so think about that if you came to church this morning and instead of seeing things about Jesus in here, you saw verses from the Koran or things that lifted up Buddha or something like that. Uh, He had set up tributes to his Roman God within their temple complex. That wasn't very popular with them who believed in the one true God, Yahweh. But also some of the Jews from Galilee had been down in Jerusalem at another one of the festivals and they got into a little bit of trouble and Pilate's soldiers came in like thugs and just stomped them and many died. And uh, so there was animosity uh, between many of them and what Pilate represented as the hard-hitting Roman leader of the area. Now, Pilate actually didn't live there in Jerusalem. He lived up the road in Caesarea where Herod the Great, many years before, had built this beautiful uh, palace complex that uh, Pilate now got to live in as the current ruler. Do you remember Herod the Great? Way back in Matthew chapter 2, you heard of Herod the Great, and we're getting toward Christmas time. Herod the Great was the ruler of the Jews for Rome. In fact, Herod the Great considered himself so great that when he heard that there was a king of the Jews that had possibly been born in Bethlehem, when the wise men came saying that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem, he said, wait a second. Uh, And he took great interest, and in fact, he had all of the children, two years old and younger, slaughtered in Bethlehem so he could take out the prospect of another rival king of the Jews. Well, he died, and when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four parts. Maybe your uh, scripture there calls him not the governor, Pilate, but calls him the tetrarch. A tetrarch is a fourth in the way the Greek and Latin unfold, and so a tetrarch is what now Pilate was considered, and he ruled over one-fourth of what used to be over what Herod ruled, and the one we're going to read about, Herod Antipas, in a minute, ruled another fourth, and we'll see that as we go. But Pilate's practice was to come to Jerusalem to keep the peace at festival times. 
uh, and politicians go to big events, right? I'll never forget being at a University of Wyoming football game there when we spent a couple years in Denver, and there we were at the Wyoming football game, and all of a sudden I saw Alan Simpson, Wyoming senator, go by. And in a state with less than a million people in the whole state, uh, they make those football games, right? Because their chances to get around lots of voters and those things. Pilate knew he needed to be where the crowd was, and he was in Jerusalem for the festival. Test tensions were always higher at those times. Resentments ran deep, and he needed to be there. Now, listen, Pilate, he didn't need any extra things to deal with. This was already a stressful time, and he'd gotten it wrong in the past. So imagine his dismay when all of a sudden, about 6 a.m. or so, the leaders are knocking on the, on the door there at the praetorium, and they've got this guy bloodied and beaten before them. It's Jesus. And they say to him, we need you to execute this man for us. Do a solid and execute him. And uh, he's groggy-eyed, and he's going, oh, no, what do they want now? You know, And so he's irritated. And perhaps he's more irritated by what we learn in John's gospel. We learn in John's gospel that they wanted this to happen, but they didn't want to come in and meet with him there because just being around a Gentile sinner like Pilate would mean they would be unable to keep the Passover festival themselves. And so uh, they stayed outside. Think about that for whacked out priorities. Here they are wanting the death of their Messiah. They want an execution to happen, but they don't want to be ceremonially defiled so they can keep on with their religious observances. And there are people in the world like that so committed to their religious observances they miss what really matters and literally the Messiah they preached about was standing right before them and they were more concerned about not getting ceremonially defiled Mm, my goodness we'll look at verse 2 in verse 2 we read, and they began to accuse Jesus. Uh, we get our word categorized from the word for accused there, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, you'll remember that they had convicted Jesus in their Jewish trials of something else. What had they convicted Jesus of? Do you remember? Blasphemy, right? They didn't believe he was God. He was saying he was, so they convicted him of blasphemy, which according to the Mosaic law could be punished by death. But that's not the charge they bring before Pilate because Pilate wouldn't have been concerned about their religious law. They change it to treason before him. So they knew a violation of their law like blasphemy wouldn't impress a Roman court. They adjusted the charge against Jesus as treason against Rome. They had three parts to that charge, and they're right there in verse 2. They first said Jesus was perverting the nation. And the word for perverting there, diastrepho, can be translated pervert, turn away, turn aside, distort. They said Jesus is distorting things around here. Uh, and I love that Pilate had his own spies, Pilate had his own people, and undoubtedly, as he talked to his advisors about that, they were able to tell him, as one of the other Gospels makes clear, that he understood they were really just envious of Jesus. They were envious of Jesus. Jesus had a hold on the common people and the crowds that these religious leaders did no kind of hold like that. They loved him and he had healed many of them and he had taught and they had, uh, the huge crowds had met him there in Jerusalem and said, behold the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Pilate knew it was envy that 
that, uh, that, that had them on this charge. They also said Jesus was telling people not to pay taxes. But that one was easily discoverable. They had tax books so they could look in those and see. And back in Luke 20, it makes clear. Jesus said, hey, give to God what's God, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and just go ahead with it. And he told people living under Roman occupation to do what the government says related to paying taxes, but make sure you worship God alone and you give to God what's God's. Pilate could quickly learn that the opposite was true. The third charge was that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, a king of the Jews. And that one is probably the one Pilate took the most serious um, as he went along. Now, it's intriguing to think about, isn't it? Did Pilate know the history with Herod the Great and what happened that we record in Matthew chapter 2? If he did, he would have taken this charge very seriously because, boy, Herod the Great had. He said, if there is a king of the Jews that is Jewish when Herod the Great was only half Jewish, if that's the case then I need to view him as a threat. Pilate was full-blooded Roman, and certainly if there was the Messiah, the king of the Jews, that could be a real political threat and could really galvanize the people. And so, uh, But verse 3 simply tells us that Pilate brought Jesus in and asked him, hey, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus basically said, you said it. <laughs> but John's gospel goes into a lot more detail about this exchange between Jesus and Pilate. And it's in John chapter 18 and 19. I'm going to put a couple of the verses up for you. But at the end of that exchange between Jesus and Pilate, Pilate was shaken to his very core. Have you ever had a confrontation with somebody that shook you to the very core, where they laid something on you and you were almost trembling at the end of that time? Well, that's what happened between Jesus and Pilate. And as the conversation goes along and as the trial goes along, the first trial, the second trial, the third trial, Pilate is increasingly shaken trying to be done with any involvement with Jesus. So in John 18, Pilate asked Jesus, what have you done? John 18, 36 says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this, we'd say, present world. He's going to rule from Jerusalem one day, but not a present threat to Rome. If my kingdom were of this present world, I put that in there, the word present, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And at that, Pilate said, are you a king then? To which Jesus responded, John 18, 37, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And then Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, you've, many of you know the Gospels well enough to know, what did Pilate respond when Jesus talked about the truth? What did he say? He kind of sneered and said, what is truth? And at that point, two worldviews were colliding. Jesus is the God who made everything in it. Jesus was the one that gave the law to Moses. He's the great I am of the Old Testament, right? The creator was in a bod on earth. He represents objective, absolute truth, truths that cannot be denied, denied, truths that are rooted in the character of God. Here was Pilate. His worldview had taught him moral relativism. He probably thought a lot like a whole lot of people think today that truth is relative, that truth is situational, that one person's truth may not be another person's truth. And so if it feels right, you do it, and it's true for you, as a lot of people say today. Pilate had one extra layer on top of that that many of the thug nations around the world have had all the way back to the world, world of empires. And for Pilate, truth was also a political construct. 
Those who were in power got to define what's true. They had the ability to back up what they said was true with their militaries and things like that. And so Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate thinks he's judging Jesus. And when Pilate refers to truth and the necessity for anybody that truly understands truth to turn to Jesus, the person of truth, Pilate sneers and said, what is truth? And implicit in that is, Rome defines truth, Jesus. I'm going to define your truth in just a few minutes when I pronounce you guilty or not guilty. Truth was a construct. It was relative. And we have a lot of people around us today and even world governments that think like that, that if you, become, you get into power, you get to define what's true, period, end of story. You might have heard of the old saying, might makes right. And perhaps some of you have had the uh, unfortunate reality uh, everybody ought to do it at some point if they're trying to uh, think and, and understand uh, the ideas that have influenced the world. But if you've ever read the philosopher Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, the same one that said God is dead. He talked about morality a completely different way than the Bible does. For Nietzsche, morality was if you have might and power, you have a moral responsibility to make yourself stronger even if it's at the expense of the weak. In fact, the weak just get in the way, so they need to be taken out of the equation, right? You need to make yourself bigger, and it doesn't matter who gets smaller as you do that. And of course, that greatly influenced a fellow named Adolf Hitler, who said, yes, Nietzsche talked about the superman who has a moral responsibility to make himself stronger at the expense of the weak. We'll be the super nation, the super race. And those godless ideas flourished. And uh, behind uh, some of that evolutionary thought that says some people are of more value than others and so abortion is okay and things like that, all going back to moral relativism, all going back to a rejection of truth as something that's absolute and defined and is based on the character and person of God. Pilate decided at that moment that Jesus wasn't a threat to him because Jesus didn't have power, Jesus didn't have an army, and so he could not hurt Pilate. So for Pilate, Jesus was just an irrelevant religious issue. And of course, he could not have been more mistaken. But back in Luke 23, 4, he tells the crowd, I find no fault in this man. He thought that would end it, but it would not. Next, we'll look at the second Roman trial before Herod Antipas, verses 5 through 12. So in verse 5, the religious leaders insist that Jesus has caused trouble throughout Judea, and it started in Galilee, and now it's come here. And at that, Pilate really perked up. Hey, boys, you just mentioned Galilee. Is that where Jesus is from? Hey, guess what? We've got us a jurisdictional issue. Now, I heard your case just now, but if you say he's from Galilee, listen, that's not on me. I'm the wrong guy to appear before. That's Herod Antipas. Uh, he's the governor of the uh, region above this one. He's the tetrarch over that area, uh, Galilee, southern Syria. That's who he is. And oh, by the way, he's in the festival right now. He's down here because he also wants to keep track of the Galilean Jews the way I'm keeping track of the Judean Jews and keeping the peace overall. And so guess what? I'm going to send Jesus and you guys over to talk to him Woo! So I won't have to deal with it anymore. And you kind of see uh, him thinking, this is great. I, I can just pass the buck here. And many, of course, politicians think like that. And that's what Pilate had going through his mind. But we've already referred to a second reason why Pilate would have been glad to send Jesus to Herod rather than talk to him himself. And that was that incident referred to in Luke 13. 
uh, my goodness, the last time I dealt with some people from Galilee here in Jerusalem, I got in big trouble with the Galilean Jews. I got in trouble with uh, old Herod up there, so we'll just let him take care of this one, and uh, everything will be good. Now, this Herod was Herod Antipas. He was actually the son of Herod the Great of Matthew chapter 2. And he had been the governor of the Galilee region since his dad's death. Now, where have we heard of this Herod Antipas before uh, in Luke's gospel and the gospels? Where have we heard of Herod Antipas, this guy, before? Uh, He had been responsible for um, the beheading of who? Of John the Baptist, right? Remember John the Baptist preaching like an Old Testament prophet had said, Hey, Herod! It is not lawful for you to have divorced your wife and taken your brother's wife as your wife. You're all in sin. And of course, that didn't sit too well with her. And when her daughter was dancing before drunk Herod and made drunk Herod happy, uh, he said, ah, I love that dance. I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. She said, let me go talk to mama about it. And mom said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. This is that Herod that let that happen and had some uh, trouble in the night sleeping where when you read the Gospels because of that. Uh, he thought when he heard about Jesus that uh, maybe Herod the Baptist had come back from the dead somehow, you know, very superstitiously thinking like that. But uh, he is described in history's pages as an idle man, a vicious man, an extravagant man, committed to his own pleasure and uh, really not interested in any kind of spirituality. He was all about himself. Herod Antipas was all about Herod Antipas. He loved him some Herod Antipas. Well, we read in verse 8 here that he had heard a lot about Jesus and wanted to hear him teach and work miracles. And I love how the scriptures come together because you may remember that back in Luke 8, one of the ladies that was a follower of Jesus, along with Mary Magdalene, was a lady named Joanna. And Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, verse 3 says that in addition to the disciples following Jesus, there were some women following along as well, and some of them had lots of money, and they were actually helping fund the food and the transportation and the lodging for the disciples as they went along. And Joanna was one of those, and Joanna was married to Chusa, and Chusa was Herod's steward. So maybe, just maybe, Joanna, when she saw her husband Chusa, had told him how awesome Jesus is, had talked about the miracles and all those different things, and then Chusa, huh, uh, maybe one time he's in there stewarding for Herod, whatever that meant, and Herod said, have you heard anything about this Jesus? And Chusa went, oh yeah, let me tell you, he's changed my wife's life. She's got joy she didn't have before. She's got a purpose she didn't have before. And let me tell you, she's seen Jesus uh, bring the dead back to life. She's seen him feed 5,000 people. He's taught all kinds of things. He's taken a particular interest in poor people and outcasts and uh, even foreigners and things like that when, uh, you know, most uh, uh, of us foreigners are hated by the Jews and those type things. And so he had heard some things, and this was his chance. He wants to see Jesus, but he has, a, uh, he has like a lot of people, an interest in hearing some of the good things Jesus teaches and maybe seeing a miracle, but he has no real interest in repenting and discovering how to have eternal life and those things. So it says here he questioned Jesus with many words, but folks, we read that Jesus didn't answer him back at all, didn't perform a miracle for him. Jesus was not interested then or now in putting on a show to satisfy your curiosity. Jesus had no interest in satisfying the curiosity of this man who had no interest in repentance. 
And the same is true for you here today or those watching online. You may may have said something like, well, if Jesus is real, Jesus, if you're out there and you prove yourself to me, then I will accept you. And that's just not the way it works. He doesn't come to people that think they've got it all together. He comes to those who have come to realize through the power of the Holy Spirit that they need God in their lives, that their sins deserve judgment, that they've made a mess of things, that they need him or they can't go on. They need purpose. They need peace. They need God in their life. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners to repentance, right? It's not those who don't understand their need for a doctor that go to the doctor. It's those that do. And when Dr. Jesus is around, he will do great things in your life if you admit your need. But if you want to add him to your portfolio of uh, you know, things that are just secondary to you in your life, he's not interested in being collected by you like that. And so Jesus, it's almost as if he says, go on to hell then, because I've already done everything I needed to do to get your attention, but you won't repent. And so the word for you is, when you think about Jesus and you, uh, and you think about his going to the cross, all of this reveals the need for him to go to the cross based on the spiritual needs that we have, the rebels that we've been against heaven, our need to turn to him. Well, Herod didn't like that message. Most people don't. Most people don't like to be called sinners who aren't okay. And there was a book, I'm okay, you're okay. Jesus says, you're not okay. None of you are. You're all sinners who need me. And the cross is a great offense to us because it was our sins that put him there, right? Well, Herod was enraged at Jesus, so he had his goons beat up Jesus some more in addition to the beatings that Jesus had already received. They put this gorgeous robe on Jesus here. And I can't help but think about that and how it may have been one of Herod's old robes, a kingly robe, right? And it's a dig perhaps to what Herod knew about the Matthew chapter 2 history, his dad, Herod the Great's story with Jesus. This Herod basically is saying, this is what my daddy was worried about all the, a couple decades ago? This guy that's letting us beat him to a, a pulp? This is the guy dad was so concerned about he had a whole bunch of infants in Bethlehem slaughtered? <laughs> to Herod Antipas, Jesus was nothing but a joke. Just like for a lot of people in the world, Jesus is nothing but a joke. But as with all sinners, sinners, Herod's day would come. It could have come right then. I mean, Jesus, as the God who created all things and we're told in Colossians, holds all things together, Jesus could have made the very atoms holding Herod's body in front of him just disintegrate right there into a pile of dust on the floor. He could do that if he'd wanted to. In fact, 2 Peter 3.10 says one day he's going to make the present earth and all that's in it dissolve just like that before he creates and fashions the new earth that will be the final reality for believers in a new body living on a new earth one day. Herod's day would come. In fact, in 36 AD, Herod's father-in-law whooped him, still mad about him divorcing his daughter there, and whooped him, and he was summoned to Rome and banished in AD 39, and Herod slips off the pages of history. Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate after beating him up. Look at verse 12. It says that that day... Pilate and Herod actually became buddies. They used to be at enmity with each other. But they bonded over the issue of rejection of Jesus. For Pilate, Jesus wasn't a relevant religious issue. For Herod, he was a joke, and they bonded that day. Isn't it interesting to see how people that think differently and have been at odds with one another will agree that they hate Jesus? Think about how in the world today, there's secular humanists 
who really hate all religion, but they will bond together with militant Islamists to persecute Jews and Christians. They bond together over hatred of God's people, Israel and God's people in the church. The third trial goes back to Pilate. The third trial was the second before Pilate, and it's in verses 13 to 25. Pilate calls the religious leaders back in, and he says, listen, I found no fault in him. He went to Herod. Herod found no fault in him. So for a second time, he's saying Jesus is innocent of anything he could be executed for. But Pilate was very sensitive. He was a lover of men's applause, and he was very sensitive to how low his job approval ratings for the Jews were. And the way the Roman government worked was, and insecure totalitarian regimes often do this, they oftentimes have people trying to rat out other people in their state, right? So uh, one of the things the Jews could do is they could send emissaries all the way to Rome and say, Pilate is a turkey of a governor. He's awful at this, that, or the other. And, And that could have serious political consequences for Pilate. And he lived in dread of it. He lived in dread of being ratted out by one of the secret informants or something like that. He wanted to keep his what we call friend of Caesar status. Having friend of Caesar status was everything for a Roman politician. How did you remain a friend of Caesar? By having nothing bad reported to Rome about riots and the like. Nothing bad could be reported of you. One of Pilate's closest friends, historians tell us, actually had lost that friend of Caesar status and Pilate didn't want to lose his. So Pilate suggests that even though he can't convict Jesus, how am I going to get out of this? I can't convict Jesus, but if I don't give them something, they're going to riot. That's going to make me look bad. I might lose my friend to Caesar status. I may be uh, put somewhere else in the world that's even worse to be at than this. And so he says, here's what I'll do, folks. I will beat Jesus. He's innocent. I find no fault in him, neither did Herod. But I'll beat Jesus within an inch of his life. There will be almost nothing left of him. I mean, we will scourge him so badly that he'll have hunks of flesh hanging off. He'll be bleeding openly. He won't ever cause trouble again after what we do to him. Let me do that and that'll be enough. And out in the crowd, he had saw them looking at one another and he said, let's yell, crucify him, crucify him. And it got louder. No, crucify him. Hey, Pilate, that's not good enough. Crucify him. Execute him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And yes, some of these same people had been there a week earlier and they had said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not all of them, but maybe some of them had been both of those and had switched with the winds the way we see people switch with the winds today. We love Jesus, we love Jesus. Oh, we get great things for going to church, social status. Oh, now we don't, we don't like Jesus. Jesus, no, no, no. we are jokers instead of acceptors of Jesus now. And perhaps some that had been in both crowds were there but others had been paid off and the chance grew and grew and grew, crucify him. Well, Pilate said, oh no, what can I do? And so another thing came up to him, verse uh, 18, in verse 18 there, we see they all cried out at once saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Pilate thought maybe releasing Barabbas, who was guilty of the very things they were accusing Jesus of, maybe that will assuage the crowd. Certainly they don't want to release a known murderer and a known person that caused trouble in Rome for one that they're just saying does, but hasn't and is innocent. And yet they did, and it just getting. And Pilate's like the old rat in the maze now. You know, he can't get out. He, he's looking this way, he's looking that. What do I do? From Matthew's gospel, we learn there was another dimension to it. His wife sent him a text message while he was on the judgment seat. It said, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. 
And so there was a spiritual component to it too where she'd had a dream and she'd seen like people do today sometimes, they see a Jesus or they see an angel of God and, uh, and remember Jesus himself reached out to Paul later that way, right? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And she said, hubby, you better get out of that. You do not want to be responsible for the death of that man. Well, here again, we learn more details in John's gospel. Because in John's gospel, it tells us that a total of seven different times, Jesus uh, or Pilate came out and spoke to the crowd and then went in and questioned Jesus some more. And, and each time he was trying somehow to get out of this, he's convinced of Jesus' innocence, but he's going back and forth and he's got this problem right there before them. And so uh, the final time he went into Jesus, he said, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power, the authority to crucify you or the authority to release you? Here's what Jesus answered, John 19, 11. You could have no authority at all against me, no power against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Luke 23 lets us know that one more time, Pilate tried to calm the crowd and release Jesus, but they became all the more insistent that he crucified Jesus. John 19, 12 records their saying, hey, if you're a friend of Caesar, you will not let this man go. And that's all it took out of political cowardice, despite saying the third time that Jesus was innocent, Pilate sentenced Jesus to be crucified. Folks, it was the most outrageous decision in history, found innocent, yet executed. Can you think of any other major world trial or event ever since? Now here's what happens. The records of history show times that people have been wrongly convicted and executed. We all know stories like that. Only for the record to be set later on, right, later on, right? But here the record of Jesus' innocence was clearly established, yet he was still executed as if, as if he was guilty. Pilate knew it was, uh, it was unconscionable to do it, and so in fact, he brought a bowl of water out in front of everybody, right? And he washed his hands symbolically to, as if to say, no, listen, I'm washing my hands of all this. I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. And then he said, you're the ones that are guilty of this man's blood. And then the most ironic things, thing happened. Matthew's gospel records it. The Jewish leaders in the crowd right there before him said, yes, his blood be on us and on our children. Do you know what's so startling about that? Back in the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel accepted the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, blood had been gotten out with a hyssop. A hyssop is a branch that pulls out the blood. And the blood had been sprinkled like this on the people. And all the children of Israel that went home there in Exodus had blood on their garments that probably never came out. And as long as they wore those garments, it was a record that they had accepted the terms of the covenant made possible by a sacrifice that had been made on their behalf. The old covenant, right? So here they are rejecting Jesus and saying, yeah, we're responsible for his death. We'll take that blood on ourselves." And what they didn't know is that every one of us, either one way or another, witnesses to what Jesus did on the cross in shedding his blood. We either embrace it by trusting in what he's done for us, accepting the terms of following him as our Savior and Lord, or in rejecting him, we're basically saying, I will go on to hell then. 
and not receive what Christ has done. It's so powerful that that happens. I think about Pilate trying to wash the blood out, you know, his culpability, his guilt in the death of Jesus. I think about Shakespeare, Lady Macbeth, right? Have you ever seen that? Lady Macbeth is responsible for the death of another, and she is wringing her hand. She's going crazy. Out, out, cursed spots. Out, out. She keeps seeing the blood on her hands, and she just can't wash it out. And that's what Pilate's trying to do. I, I don't, I'm not responsible for this. I just want it all to go away, but it won't go away, Pilate. You've got to deal with Jesus. He's the answer. He's the question. You know what's really interesting about the words they said, his blood be on us and our children. Isaiah 52 and 53 is that great passage that talks about the Messiah dying for the sins of the people. Here's what Isaiah 52, 15 says. So shall he, the Messiah, sprinkle many nations. Kings shut their mouths at him. It had been predicted that this blood would sprinkle everyone, Pilate, the Jews, everyone. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now, the next time we get into Luke's gospel, we'll talk about the crucifixion and all that comes with that. But who is responsible for the execution of innocent Jesus? Well, certainly that generation of Jewish leaders Yes, Pilate and Herod, yes, but the blood of Jesus is on all of us who are guilty sinners. He died for you, he died for me. I love how John 10.10 says it. John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he says, no one's taken my life from me. I'm laying it down as an offering. And if I lay it down, I'll pick it back up one day. He predicts his death and resurrection right there. Isaiah 53, 10, 10 said, Yes, it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. I like how John three sixteen says it. For God so loved the world, everyone in the world, that he gave his one and only son as an offering, right? Jesus as an offering. So that whoever, Danny Campbell, Elizabeth Bookout, Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, so thankful for the blood. The blood that was rejected by others is the blood we embrace as that, that can cleanse us from all sins and make us forgiven before God. Pilate did everything he could to get out of deciding, but Jesus has not left him or us that option. We either receive him and meet him one day as our Savior and King, or we reject him and will meet him as judge. Pilate, it didn't even work temporarily for him. Within about five years, after handing Christ over to be crucified, he was removed for other political mistakes. And uh, one historian says that within a decade of what he did to Jesus, he committed suicide himself. Didn't need to be that way. What is truth? The truth was standing before him, and the truth is standing before us. The person and work of Christ is everything. He's the ultimate Answer, he's the ultimate question. John 1.11 says it like this, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's the historical record. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Aren't you glad? For the freeness and fullness of the gospel offer made possible because an innocent man took your guilt upon himself there on the cross. Bow your heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. 
There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.